Strategic Tech Coaching Podcast. Our host, Oscar Endermo, will together with guests share proven, tested strategies for improving your life and business. At the end of each episode, you will learn how you can use technology to implement those strategies into your daily life. We want to help you bridge the gap from inspiration to implementation. SAS, Scandinavian Airlines, was facing large financial difficulties and they were losing about $17 million per year. Their international reputation was that they were always late. A 1981 survey showed that SAS was ranked number 14 out of 17 airlines in Europe when it came to punctuality. That same year, Janne Karlsson was the, became the new CEO uh, and he took over the airline. After one year of taking over SAS, it had become the most punctual airline in Europe. How did they turn that around? A big part was training, investing in their people. Danish consultant Klaus Muller was brought in and started an ongoing training program called Putting Peoples First. The program was focused on delegating responsibility away from management and allow customer-facing staff to make decisions to resolve any issues on the spot. These changes soon impacted the bottom line as well and the company made a profit of $54 million in 1982. SES started service schools and, and had some great years in the 80s. American Management Association 75th Years Management Review writes... John Carlson's decision to ask Klaus Müller to develop and conduct a service and personal development program for more than 13,000 employees and a management development program for all managers of SES in 1981 was one of the 75 greatest management decisions ever made. Within four months, SES was the most punctual European airline and its service levels were rejuvenated. Amazing stuff happens when you invest in your people. A couple of weeks ago I found a documentary on Swedish television called Personal Development for Sales. It was about how companies in Sweden started to send their managers to different trainings in the 80s. And since I grew up with these things, uh, I was joining my mother on courses in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, she worked with uh, Happiness at Work. Uh, so th it was really interesting to see this documentary because yeah, I know she was part of that uh, movement in the 80s. And they, show, they showed a range of different interesting trainings, like different breath work, which is interesting because this is really popular now with Wim Hof and a lot of other breath work gurus. Uh, it was dealing with emotions, trauma, time management. So some of these techniques that they were showing on the TV show was almost a little bit like hippie-like, actually. But yeah, one of the trainers on the show was Klaus Müller. Uh, so after the show, I googled his name and found his website. Uh, I reached out to see if I could get an interview on my podcast to discuss how it was then and how it is now. Uh, it turns out that, unfortunately, Klaus has passed away uh, about two years ago, but his concepts and ideas are still being used, and his son Casper has taken over the company. So Casper replied and was happy to do, do an interview. So in this episode, we go down memory lane and look at leadership training in the 80s. We talk about how Klaus uh, revamped SES, Scandinavian Airlines, and Casper uh, goes through several of the principles that was taught then, and they are timeless. Probably more important than ever in our fast-changing, always-connected world. We learn about productivity and also how to build general business excellence. So in this episode, you get... Casper Miller and I have a... Welcome to the Strategic Tech Coaching Podcast. Thank you very much, Oscar, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I start normally with this question that uh, I used to live in Dubai. And imagine that you and me are in a lift in Dubai and we go up to a sky bar and in the lift there's a third guy. And that third guy is asking, Casper, what, what, what do you do? What would you tell him? That's actually a very good question. I, I like that. It's, it's a bit like, yes, it really is the elevator pitch, isn't it? <laughs> um, well, I am the executive chairman of a company called Klaus Muller Consulting. We help companies all over the world uh, manage four things, really, their productivity, their relationships, and their quality. And uh, on top of that, we also help them in terms of actually implementing uh, those ideals within those areas uh, by focusing on good leadership. And um, we do that in the form of seminars. We have published a wide range of books. And we also have a number of tools in the form of digital tests and uh, computer software uh, to help companies in each of those areas. 
Excellent. So now we reached the top of the elevator, and so that was a, a good elevator pitch. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, the reason we are here is because I was watching Swedish TV, and there was a, a documentary called Personal Development for Sales, and I got interested in the title. And it turns out that it's a documentary from 1981 showing how Swedish companies started to send their managers and the leadership teams to different retreats in Sweden to work on different things like emotional intelligence, personal development, different spiritual things. And there was one productivity expert and master that uh, was uh, one of the big profiles in this documentary, and that, that was your father. Uh, so I googled his name and uh, found your website. And uh, I liked him as a speaker, and he's, he spoke Swedish with a slight Danish accent. Uh, and uh, I reached out to you, and uh, you, you mentioned that your father passed away two years ago. So now you're managing the, 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 all the stuff that he, all the materials that has been developed over the years. So I was thinking 1981, what was your father doing at the time, 1981? Well, 1981, and I think the reason that that program was actually made um, was that in 1981, uh, Jan Carlson, who was then the uh, CEO of uh, SAS, he decided to actually um, try and make a kind of momentous change for the organization. Um, each year back then, of course, like there is today, there were kind of surveys of what are the best airlines in the world, what are the worst airlines in the world. And um, SAS was really at the bottom of the charts uh, just for Europe. They ranked number 13 out of 14 companies in Europe. And they decided to say, no, we need to be able to be competitive because they also knew that the governments of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway were not going to keep holding the hand under them if, if they kept on underperforming, but they needed to actually be profitable in their own right as a company. And after a, one of his employees, by pure chance, had actually been snowed in in northern Sweden, um, he had suddenly eight hours to kill, and he heard in a hotel, he heard laughter coming from a room, and uh, he asked the receptionist at the hotel, what, what's going on in there? Why, why are people sitting and laughing? Oh, it's a, it's a seminar that's going on. And then at the uh, first break, then um, this uh, guy actually walked up to my dad and said, um, is there any chance that I, I can sit in and just listen for a while because uh, you're clearly kind of doing something to, to inspire people here or at least make them laugh. And I'm going to be stuck here for the next several hours and I don't know what else to do. And he was, uh, he was just blown away by what he actually heard about how we can actually take responsibility for our own lives and, and kind of our happiness and, and where we're going to get to in life how we're going to achieve our goals, but also to, uh, talking about things like uh, uh, service quality, which nobody had actually talked about before. And after that, he actually said to my dad, well, you know what? I have actually just been hired by Jan Carlson. Um, I would like you to come to Stockholm and have a chat with both of us about what you might be able to do to kind of help turn SAS around. And, um, then it was uh, decided that they were going to do a complete change of the culture. And that really was the birth of the Scandinavian management model of the more participative management model that we're actually seeing today. The idea where you actually want to achieve a consensus between employees and management rather than actually just having this hierarchical straight down um, decisions coming from the top in terms of actually uh, trying to get people involved because uh, my dad very strongly believed that if you were going to get the best out of people, they had to feel that they were actually part of that process themselves as well. Um, and that they actually also could take responsibility for the well-being of, of both themselves, but also their colleagues and their customers. And um, then the decision was made that everybody within SAS had to go on at least a two-day service course. And all of the managers actually did three-week courses in total over the, over the next 18 months. Um, they set up a joint venture called Scandinavian Service School and um, developed a book uh, that then became really the, the start of the Scandinavian management model called Putting People First 
where we say that it's not about putting customers first. It's, it's such a platitude and, and kind of everybody says that, oh yes, here in our company, we put customers first. Well, actually we don't, but uh, it's because people don't understand that the only way that you can put customers first is by putting your staff first. Because if you put your staff first, then they will put customers first. Mm, wow. And so that's really where it, it all started. Um, this also did the shift in our business from uh, being purely about productivity, which started with the time manager, which was developed in 1975, and then moved into really the next phase of, of the business, which made uh, my dad kind of recognized as a service management guru um, and kind of with a high focus on quality. And, you know, in, in 1990, there was a report written for the then uh, Department of uh, Trade and Industry in the UK uh, by a professor called Tony Bendel, where he actually said, well, uh, there are these management gurus around the world and what they've meant for quality thinking. Um, so yeah, the, the uh, quality gurus where you had uh, first, um, you had the Americans after World War II coming to Japan, teaching the, uh, teaching the Japanese about quality. Um, you had the Japanese who then took it upon themselves to actually take that one step further, deliver higher and higher quality. And then you had then the new modern wave, um, again, with the Americans, but also my dad as the only European being a part of that. That's really interesting. Now, I saw on your website the, the testimonial from Jana Carlson that, uh, from SAS. Uh, and I mean, that, that was legendary. I studied hospitality management uh, at, yeah. at university. And of course, there's a lot of talks about the uh, pyramid, you know, moment of truth, uh, these kind of things, these service concepts. So I didn't know that uh, your father was involved with these, uh, uh, these service trainings. And he was. So. Actually, funnily enough, just the other day, I, I found a, a print of an old article. This is from the American Management Association. Their 75th um, anniversary, uh, 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 well, they were celebrating their 75th anniversary and they did this special issue of their magazine. And to celebrate that, they actually uh, pulled together the 75 best management decisions of all time. And uh, the very last one actually reads, 1981, Jan Carlson, new chief of airline SAS, sent uh, 10,000 frontline managers to two-day service seminars and 25,000 managers for three-week courses. Within four months, SAS was the most punctual European airline and its service levels were rejuvenated. Um, so yes, um, that's also really where you can say that was the, the big break for, for my dance company, just taking them beyond just being kind of focused on productivity. And um, within the, the space then of the next 10 years throughout the 1980s, uh, TMI, uh, Time Manager International, as it was called, became the largest training organization um, within HR for, for Europe. Amazing. So if we start with that first part, uh, time management, um, what do you see different now with time management nowadays and uh, 1981? We talked about before the microphones that when you came to the office in 1981, there was no computer, there was just a typewriter and your phone and maybe some papers there. So a little bit different than today's situation. I think it's very different. Of course, uh, all of the tools that we use have, have completely changed. The way that we do business has changed. It's not just because of the pandemic, but the shift that has happened since the kind of mid-90s with the advent of the World Wide Web. Um, email became commonplace uh, during the late 90s, kind of all over the world. Um, you, you also, of course, see a completely different picture today where you're not just competing locally anymore, that you're competing 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and your competitor might as well be kind of at the far edge of the world uh, as it might be down the street. Um, and all of that shift has, of course, occurred because of the technology that has been made available to us. So today, as you say, we no longer probably even have uh, a piece of paper or anything to write on, and we definitely don't have our, our kind of pencils that have been sharpened that would have been in briefcase back in, in the uh, 70s and, and early 80s. Um, in terms of the tools, they have changed, but of course, what we're doing in many ways has not changed because it is still about trying to achieve 
goals, uh, whether that's at the personal level or as, as part of the team that we work in at our business or for the company as a whole. We have to make sure that we actually get a return on, on those resources that we use. And there are really only three resources that you can use. There's time, there's knowledge, and there's money. Uh, you need to get a return on your investment within all three areas. Um, that has not changed. Uh, it's just how we do it has changed because of the technology that's available to us. But also, as we just spoke about just before we started here, as you said, we also uh, just briefly touched on, on the productivity paradox, which was becoming something that was talked about in the United States already in the late 70s, early 80s, saying that we have all of this kind of new computing power available to us, but we're actually not seeing an increase in terms of, of the productivity. We're not being able to read this in the GDP of our country. Why is that? And I think one of the key reasons why training is so important is that we can see that even today with technology, that there might be all of these kind of quantum leaps in terms of what the technology can do. But if we as humans don't actually learn how to use that technology properly, then we're never ever going to be able to benefit from it. Um, you can probably remember kind of in, in the 80s and 90s, each time a new version of Microsoft Office came out, it, it took you months and months to actually learn how it worked because all of the menus have been changed around and, and you couldn't find the things that you actually needed the most. And so therefore, instead of productivity rising with uh, the advent of new technology, it was actually falling. And this is still the case today. I find that there are so many different apps for productivity. There are so many kind of different principles for how you, you can do it. But if we do not actually learn the basics of, uh, of both how to use the technology, but even more importantly, to learn the basics of what actually makes you more productive as an individual and as a company, then of course, um, then all of these technologies are going to fail. And that's why we're still talking about the productivity paradox today in 2021. Yeah, no, it's so easy with the distractions and then your mind goes completely the other way, you know, with, and I think we talked about the Eisenhower matrix and this prioritizing, it becomes, if you have 50 emails in your inbox, prioritizing becomes even more important because there's so many different things. And if you start working on the wrong thing, you end up wasting a lot of time. But 1975, when your father developed this, well, what were some of the core of the framework? Well, if, if we try just taking a little bit uh, further back and actually going back to, uh, I think actually over 1926, uh, Frederick Taylor and, and kind of the, this idea of actually trying to measure uh, productivity, you know, they, they kind of look at different parameters such as does it increase the productivity of a factory worker if we have better lighting? Does it increase the fa uh, factory worker's productivity uh, if we tweak this parameter or that parameter? Those were kind of things that already back then, we kind of somebody knew that uh, there is something that can be done. Productivity is something that can actually be influenced uh, by a, a wealth of different factors. Of course, um, going a little bit further, during World War II, we saw one of, of course, the biggest military operations, well, actually the biggest military operation of all time, uh, Operation Overlord, which was uh, the D-Day landings in Normandy on the 6th of June, 1944. There were so many different parts that had to work together that you needed to find a system for prioritizing what actually needed to get done. And uh, Eisenhower, uh, or at least his, his staff, developed this model, which we now know as the Eisenhower matrix, where, of course, on, on one uh, side we have uh, importance and on the other we have the urgency. So, so you uh, can break that down into the, the four quadrants of what is both urgent and important, that's the thing that you need to get done right here and right now. If the house is on fire and, and kind of your family are stuck inside, you are going to rush in and try and save them. Of course, that, that is beyond uh, doubt. Um, then we have the things that are not urgent, but are important. 
And that's unfortunately where people, even today, they're not spending their time, but that's where they should be spending their time because that's where they're going to be working on the long-term strategic projects. They're the ones that are actually going to help them achieve their goals, whether they are personal goals or whether it is a business goal uh, for what it is you want to achieve in your business. Um, then we also, of course, have the, the things that are uh, urgent but not important. That is what kind of a lot of people tend to get dragged into that, you know, you get an email saying high importance, but all of these tasks or kind of all of the issues that you have to deal with in, in that email or on any other platform, it might be kind of a, a Trello or Teams or whatever, you get something, oh, can you get this done? But you have to sometimes stop and ask yourself the question, is this going to get me any closer to actually achieving my goal? or the company's goal. So in other words, are we spending uh, our time on doing the right things? Um, and of course, then there's the final quadrant, which is kind of the things that are neither urgent nor important. And those are the things that you really need to make sure that you cut from your life. If you don't do that, then it's going to be very, very difficult to actually get anything done. Yeah. Uh, jumping back to your question then, in 1975, um, there wasn't really anything kind of on the market to help you kind of try and build a bridge between how you set goals and how you achieve them. You had systems like the Philofax, which was literally only two parts. One is a diary or schedule, and the other part is, is a contact list. So you said, right, okay, I need to call Bob, and then you can find Bob's details in there. And then you could even write into your diary, I need to call him at two o'clock today. Um, so the idea in 1975 was to actually say, well, we know that in order to be successful, that we need to try and set some goals. And then we also need to find out a way whereby we can actually manage those goals to actually ensure that we, we reach them. How do we do that? By ensuring that we spend the time on doing the things that are important, the ones, in other words, that get us closer to achieving those goals rather than take us further away from them. And so all of the principles behind it were kind of, you could say that it, it was in, there were some, some different philosophies. One was the idea of goal setting. How do you set a goal? Uh, how do you break that down into some milestones that you know that you need to achieve on the way to get there to actually be able to measure your progress? Um, then we had uh, something called the overview philosophy, which you can imagine a bit like a Christmas tree, where you can say that the goal is uh, that that's the main trunk of the tree. And then you can say that you also, in order to get that, then you can break down your activities and your tasks but they, you need to give them some kind of foundation. That foundation is, of course, the big branches. Um, and those branches is what we call key areas. So each person will have a number of different key areas. Uh, what we've always advocated is that you have a, a mixture of, of course, work and, and personal key areas. Uh, never more than 10, though, because the human brain is just not built in such a way that we can actually... Uh, keep track of more than 10 different things that we do in the subconscious. Uh, there, there is, of course, uh, something to be said for actually tons of different thoughts that can run around our heads and so on. But in order to actually uh, keep your focus on what it is you're doing, you should never have more than kind of 10 key areas. But would you say um, 10, would say 10 business, 10 personal, or? No, no, 10, 10 in total. 10 to, total yeah, that, okay. that is what the mind can actually deal with. Okay. And so the idea is that, for instance, for me, my, my key areas are, are very simple. I run a business. So I've got one key area, which is about the admin and the finance side of the business. I've got a key area that's about product development, keeping on developing kind of the principles, the concepts and so on that my dad started developing back in the 1970s and kept on developing right up until his death in 2018. Um, then I've, of course, got business development. We're not going to stay in business unless we make sure that we get clients. Um, then there is also another area, which is uh, I've got some special projects that I work on, uh, which are kind of, it's taking them from our product development box and saying, now this is becoming a fully-fledged product in its own right. Then I give that its own key area. 
Um, then I've also got some uh, personal key areas that are related to my personal development. Uh, I've got one that is my friends and family. And then I always have one that's just called great ideas. So the things where you, you need somewhere to write them down before you kind of forget that great idea you had in the middle of the night. And that's where you can kind of start working with it until you kind of fully flesh it out. But then the idea becomes that if you have a goal, and of course here I'm talking about uh, SMART goals uh, that I, I'm sure you know about, not just this, oh yes, I'd like to become uh, fitter or I would like to do, uh, I'd like to do something great. No, very, very specific goals that say, for instance, by the end of next year, I want to grow our revenue by 10%. That's a very, very specific goal. I've got a deadline. It's, uh, it's of course, clearly measurable because I either hit the 10% or I don't. Um, but it's also something that is, is going to be challenging um, in the circumstances of, of the current uh, business uh, climate, uh, how the economy is looking, not just with Corona, but what's happening in China with Evergrande and, and things like that right now. Um, so then I can start to look at my different key areas and say, right, this of course relates to my key area business development. So I don't go in and say, well, what are the tasks that I need to do in order to actually achieve that goal? And each task you will probably find is something that's not just kind of done in a, in a quick minute or something. That is where we actually say, well, each task can be broken further down into activities. And then those tasks and activities, they are then the ones that you actually need to find time for in your diary. Um, because if you do not actually take, uh, take those activities and those tasks that you actually need to solve in order to achieve your goals and spend your time on them, you're never ever going to achieve any of your goals. That, of course, is something that hasn't changed. But with this information overload, with this kind of constant kind of pulling and dragging of, of people uh, kind of in all directions with all of this, uh, all of these kind of, um, uh, yes, well, inputs, but also kind of orders uh, that we're getting at work, then it can be very, very difficult to actually be very productive in what it is you do. And therefore, you need to find ways of actually cutting through all of this mess and actually kind of look at and focus on the things that are important. And that's really what the time manager helped yeah. people to do uh, back yeah. in 1975. Yeah, I think your tree, that, that tree was uh, in the video actually from the, I saw 1981, oh, yeah. the, the, the tree. Yeah. And, and uh, this Eisenhower matrix, I heard from seven habits of highly successful people that came a little bit later in the 80s, 80s I guess. So I guess your dad was really uh, advanced on this uh, before his time. Uh, so yeah, it's interesting to hear and like you're saying I think these principles are more important than ever when the world is so complex and there's so much information everywhere so the, the ones that can learn to prioritize correctly is uh, going to be the winner uh, so that was a, a physical uh, calendar as well that you sold at the time so it was was it workshops and the calendar at the it, time it or? was yes it, it was a, a physical tool um, it was a ring binder but it was made in such a way that you uh, actually, you could fold it out. And so you actually could have an overview of the same time of your kind of both your, your, your schedule, um, but your diary and also your goals and your, your key areas and the, and the tasks and activities that belong within those key areas. So that was actually the first time that you in one tool could get an easy overview of kind of what it is you wanted to achieve and how you could actually then prioritize your time in order to make sure that you achieve that. Okay, interesting. Uh, I know your father sold that part uh, the 2004 to another company, the, yeah. the, the time management, but, but have you digitalized this, uh, this? Is there a digital version of this now? Well, uh, there is. It's, uh, it's, still, it's in a public beta, I would call it. It's called Practical Manager. And practical managers built around the principles of the, the time manager, um, but it's also taking in some of the other principles about um, good employership. Uh, employership, of course, is, is a, something that's become very big in Sweden, uh, probably uh, greater than anywhere else actually in the world. 
um, but was also a concept that was developed by uh, by Klaus back in 1994 uh, was the first book about that. And um, it also has things like uh, the emotional intelligence aspect is also a key part of it to make sure that kind of people work uh, better together. But not only does it have kind of all of those things, but we're also using uh, the idea of the net promoter score in a digital format, so the ENPS, uh, to actually kind of track your, your performance, uh, both you as an individual, but also as a team and the company as a whole, where you can get an overview of how the different teams are performing. So that's, uh, that's a piece of software that, that we are continuing to work on. And it's something that we uh, strongly believe has the potential to actually become a great success. Um, and the reason behind that is that we still feel that even though you have all of these different types of software called productivity solutions, um, we actually find that they're still not doing that very, very simple link that you need to have between your goals and how you spend your time. So there are lots of things about what are the things that you need to prioritize? What are the things that you need to be working on? But it's all kind of this highfalutin stuff, you know, even the Eisenhower matrix has been made into an app um, and you can use it, but it still doesn't actually help you set aside the time that you don't actually need in order to achieve those goals that you actually put in there. Um, and that I, I still think is what, what I, I still find mind-boggling that nobody is doing this. Um, you can say it's the same with Outlook. It's got it's got all of the tasks that you can put in there, but it's still nothing more than a glorified to-do list with deadlines. Um, it doesn't actually have that breakdown of saying, well, it's fine. You have all of these 150 tasks, but what do they actually relate to? How do they fit in with what your goals are? Because we all know how it works. If you haven't got a long to-do list, every single time you put a tick mark against something, it's as if you have remembered three new things that you need to add to the list. And this list, therefore, just keeps on getting longer and longer. So if we don't get back to the very simple principles of, of prioritization, then we can never actually ever be productive. Okay, so on your website, you have this, uh, you call it general business excellence. And I understand from productivity, you went more to people and service with, uh, with SAS. And uh, uh, yeah, you mentioned there, yeah, what are the parts of general business ex excellence uh, as per uh, your consultancy? Well, I, I guess first I should just set the scene and, and say that, uh, of course, a, an excellent business, so business excellence overall, means a company that's able to not just compete today, but is also able to, to compete, to survive and thrive also in tomorrow as well, kind of where there are going to be new challenges, where the, the speed of change is actually going to be even greater than it is today. Even though, of course, it, it seems mind boggling to us, we can see the, the speed of change. I, I think that kind of back in the 1980s, when we were talking about Moore's principle about the computing power and, and the price ratio, uh, of course, we couldn't imagine that uh, just a few years later, we would see things like the iPhone, uh, how that has become just ubiquitous all over the world, how we are seeing all of these uh, apps, whether they are web-based or whether they are uh, smartphone apps, that are, are going to help us kind of do our jobs. Um, and we're going to see even greater changes in the next 20 years than we've seen in the last 20 years. And, and so of course the, the technological change we've seen over the last 20 years has been even greater than what the world experienced the preceding 100 years. And I, I think we're going to see just in the next 10 years or maybe even just in the next five years, we're going to see even greater change than we've seen in the last 20. Um, these things, of course, mean that we have to make sure that we are able to compete, not just today, but tomorrow as well. How do we do that? We need to show excellence in two different areas. One is general business excellence, and the other one is professional business excellence. Professional business excellence is what it means to be successful in the line of business that you are in. So if you are a hotel chain, 
then your challenges are going to be different to those of an airline or a car manufacturer. You need to have the people who have the specific professional skills to actually be able to do the things that are going to set you apart and make you the best in your industry. You need to have, say in the hotel business, you need to know something about how do we uh, keep up cleanliness protocols? How can we make sure that we clean our rooms most efficiently, the fastest way, the cheapest way possible, um, but also you need to have incredibly good service skills so people feel welcome and they want to come back. You need to make sure that you uh, understand how to run your food and beverage operations. Um, all of those are, of course, specific to the hotel industry, whereas, of course, an airline is things like how do you actually get the baggage uh, from check-in loaded onto the plane, loaded off the plane as quickly as possible and get it on, on the baggage carousel. And get, uh, you also need to have, of course, pilots who know how to fly a plane. You wouldn't ask a butcher to, to fly a, a plane. So why should we make it, why, why should we kind of uh, be in a position whereby we actually ask people to do things that they don't know how to do? No. In your specific line of business, you need to find the best possible people. But on the other hand, you also need to have what we call general business excellence. And it is really the idea that there are three pillars. We call this our management house. The three pillars that no matter kind of what changes or what management fads and so on are, are being implemented by companies, these are the things that are never, ever going to change. And they are productivity, relationships, and quality. What I mean by that is that productivity is, of course, all about ensuring that you have a greater output than input of your, your three resources, time, knowledge, and money. So in other words, you get a return on your investment in the three of those. Relationships, that is about ensuring that we work well together with all of our stakeholders. In other words, the people who can make us or break us. That's both internally in the company, so the departments aren't fighting each other, employees are not fighting management, or the other way around, um, but you are actually able to work together to make sure that everything you do actually is greater than the sum of its parts. Um, and it, it, again, of course, everything is interrelated. You cannot have great relationships if you have low productivity and, and vice versa. And that also goes for the third area, which is quality. And quality, as my, my dad liked to joke, quality is simply put that the customers rather than the products come back. So in other words, you can call it customer loyalty. That's, that's the same as quality. If you do not deliver a high enough quality, of course, then customers are not going to come back. So those are the things, and no matter what kind of management principle you see, whether it's the four-hour work week or GTD or whatever in productivity, uh, whether it's uh, total quality management, uh, emotional intelligence, all of these are, are great concepts, but they are still concepts where um, companies have kind of said, right, we're going to implement this, we're going to focus on this. And then it's just a fad because then a couple of years later or maybe even next year, something new comes along and then you see companies saying, no, no, we, we have to implement this instead. What we are trying to say is that productivity relationships and quality, they're actually what we call evergreens of management. That no matter what, in order to be successful now and in the future, you need to have good productivity. You have to have good relationships with your stakeholders and you need to deliver quality. If you do not do that, then you're not going to be in a position to actually be able to compete going forward. But yeah. it is not enough just having the kind of the, the confluence of those three areas that are interdependent, but you also need to have good management or good leadership. And what is good management, good leadership? Again, loads of principles for how you do it but it comes back down to what we call managerial behavior. Managerial behavior consists of three things. The ability to set goals, so goal setting behavior, we call it. The ability to, uh, to solve problems along the way 
to actually allow us to reach those goals. That's what we call problem-solving behavior. And then finally, communicating behavior. That you need to be able to actually communicate to your staff what it is they're doing, why they're doing it, how they fit into the great picture, because otherwise they're not going to be motivated to actually do their best. People need to have that sense of purpose because without that sense of purpose, then they're not going to be able to perform at their best. It's going to impact also on their relationships because they're going to take their frustrations home with them. And of course, that, that's a vicious circle. So also in order to ensure that people have a good work-life balance and that they actually manage to achieve something uh, here in life, you need to make sure that you have that combination of productivity, relationships uh, and quality and all bound together by good leadership. So that really is uh, general business excellence in a nutshell. Yeah, I like it. It's very, because I can see it in front of me, very easy, a house built with these three pillars with the leadership behind. Very easy. So I like this model. It's really nice. Uh, Peter Drucker famously said uh, business is uh, innovation and marketing. So where would you put innovation and marketing uh, on these three pillars? Uh, a little bit on all of them? Oh, well, the, th the thing is, of course, that in, in terms of innovation, of course, that there can be many different things. Uh, in, innovation uh, can be about productivity. It can be about innovating the processes uh, that we use in the company or the systems that we use. It can also be product innovation, where, again, of course, then it relates more highly to quality. Is that something that, is it a product or a service that people actually want to buy from us? And if they have bought it, are they willing to come back and buy it again? Um, again, in terms of marketing, a lot of that is, again, of course, uh, both about the quality, as, as I said, that's about customer loyalty, but it's also about relationships because with all of your stakeholders that you have to, of course, ensure that you are not annoying the public with what it is you're doing, but you're actually trying to create trust. Um, trust really is the key in any uh, powerful human relationship. And that's also true of companies and, and their customers. If there is no trust, well, then of course your customers are going to leave you and go elsewhere. Because today the transaction costs in, in most industries, they, they are so laughably low that it's no longer a question of kind of uh, being able to switch. Everybody can do it. That's also why we see when it comes to things like customer complaints, that in most cases, people can't even be bothered to complain. They just change suppliers. And the thing is that, you know, people who do complain, in most cases, they actually want to stay uh, customers. And uh, that's why companies, of course, need to be better in terms of actually their communication, <coughs> excuse me, both their relationships and their quality with those customers when it comes to the service to ensure that they actually are able to kind of deal with these complaints and get them to stay uh, with customers. So, so uh, with these uh, three pillars and the leadership, uh, do you have a di diagnostic tool to, to measure where someone is on, on these things when you work with new clients? We, we, have, we have several diagnostic tools. Uh, one thing I should probably explain is also that we, we work with all of these areas on three different levels of the organization. We look at them both from the organizational level, but more importantly, in many ways, the team level and the individual level. Because uh, you have to understand that any change program that you just try and run from the top down and say, oh, we have to do this as a company, as a whole, is, is pretty much bound to fail from day one. If you do not get everybody's buy-in, whether it's top management, and involve everybody in the organization in that change process, then it's, it is never ever going to take hold in the organization. And that's where we see kind of all of these fads, those concepts, they get implemented and then they get replaced by something else a couple of years later. Um, there needs to be this kind of more holistic approach where we look at kind of what can be done at the individual level, the team level and, and the company level. And that's where instead of having just the, the four areas in the management house, we actually have a model we call the 12 windows. So that actually takes on, on one scale, you've got the individual uh, level, you've got the team and the company level, and then on the other axis, then you have got productivity, relationships and quality and leadership or management. Um, so then we can say within each box, 
and you know, when we each window in our 12 windows model, there is going to be different content there that is going to change over time because we are going to find different ways of being more productive. For instance, there will be new software being developed for that. We are going to find new ways of building relationships with our various internal and external stakeholders. And again, in terms of quality, that perception of quality is also going to change over time, depending on what it is that we want to create and what it is that, that the consumers are actually willing to, to pay for. But it's just that the framework, as I said before, that's never going to change. That you have these four areas on those three levels. That framework is always going to stay the same for any company, in any culture, in any country, and in any industry. Um, then within each of those areas, then we have a number of tools available to us. So we have different measurement tools uh, in the form of surveys that are, uh, can be done both at the personal and the team level. Uh, and then you can take all of the results from the team level to actually create an overall accurate picture of how the company is performing as a whole. Um, and so what we've done now over the last few years is we've taken and digitalized these tests that were previously available as booklets and where um, a consultant would then take all of the uh, data that you had filled in in the, these questionnaires sit and input it manually on a computer. Today, you can just go to our website, buy a test, download it, fill it in, send it back, and you're going to get your results uh, right away. Interesting. Uh, I mentioned when we were emailing back and forth to set up this interview that my mom worked with Happiness at Work, uh, Arbetsglädje in, in Sweden in the 80s and the 90s. And what they did was they did projects that uh, to ask the frontline staff how they would improve the business. So they really participate. Uh, uh, but she, she always said, if we didn't get the top management involved, the project would fail. So it needs to be aligned on, on the different levels. Uh, uh, so yeah, it, it speaks to what you're saying. We, we've got some slides that we're still using presentations of, of kind of the top manager kind of going, we're going in that direction. Now, please follow us. But he's standing there actually with his golf bag over his shoulder. And of course, then the next slide is showing everybody else going through the training program while the manager is out playing golf. And I, I think, unfortunately, that's been symptomatic of a lot of these kind of things that we want to implement. If you are showing with your actions as a, a top manager that you don't actually care about it, if you don't uh, actually believe in it, then why should anybody else? Why should they follow you? They are not going to do as you say. They're going to do as you do. It, it, it is very, very simple kind of understanding of human behavior, but clearly there are cases of people being promoted way beyond their abilities. And that is because, again, we've always kind of hired people for their IQ and for, for their technical abilities, rather than actually looking at their people skills. And of course, with the advent of emotional intelligence, a lot of people say, ah, oh, yes, actually, emotions and, and people skills, they matter as well. But it still just seems to have kind of gone into the background in, in the way that, um, and the lip service is being paid to it and saying, well, people are important, but what are you actually doing in order to actually develop people? Because um, Howard Gartner, uh, he identified that there were seven different types of intelligence. And the only one that you're actually able to change as an adult is your emotional intelligence. It's something that you can still work on. And without having emotionally intelligent leadership, you are going to have teams of, uh, full of frustrated people who are going to uh, live with political infighting and, and to think that that doesn't impact on their productivity, their happiness, um, the quality of the work that they deliver is of course uh, complete madness. Uh, yeah, so I'm, what I'm thinking is this uh, participative management styles or leadership styles that uh, involves uh, people and uh, not just the top-down approach, I think uh, is uh, kind of a trend now also coming from the US, but I guess Scandinavia was, I mean, this is part of our culture. 
uh, that uh, we we're, this uh, kind of informal with the managers. We can call the managers by first name. It's not so hierarchy, big hierarchies and all this. Have you worked with anything with Asia with your with your projects with your products? In Asian well, cultures? Actually, uh, we, we used to have a, a big client that was based in both Denmark and Hong Kong. And of course, that, that's very interesting because you have got those two very, very different cultures. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And uh, the thing is that, of course, yes, in many ways, it is a completely alien concept in a lot of Asian countries that still tend to work in a much more hierarchical manner. But in any business out there where it has actually been, been implemented, we have actually seen, of course, great improvements in productivity, great, great improvements in relationships, and also higher quality. Um, all of this actually started, funnily enough, really, you could say, with a Japanese company. And Japan, of course, was known as the place where you had the first quality revolution after World War II. Um, it's funny to think, in fact, that before World War II, people's um, perception of what countries delivered equality was vastly different to what it is today. Before World War II, Germany, for instance, had the reputation for building terrible products that, that broke all the time. Um, they actually had the reputation that Italy had in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, whereas, of course, by that time, it made in Germany, that was really a a stamp of approval. Japan was the same. Anything coming out of Japan, it was as bad as we would think of made in China in the 80s and 90s. Um, so the fact that you had a culture that was able to kind of end the rubble and the aftermath of World War II actually do a complete quality revolution and change the way that things were done to such an extent that they actually became a world leader where we would actually need to study what it was they were doing uh, to, uh, to actually understand how we could compete with them. I, I found it incredibly fascinating. Um, there are some, some great, great stories behind that. And it, it's something that you really, really need to, to try and understand that because you are on the top uh, of the world at one moment, is not you're not going to stay there unless you actually continue to, to work in order to stay there. And so my dad worked with Japan Airlines and, and like with SAS, actually did a joint venture uh, with Japan Airlines. Uh, so a bit like Scandinavian service school, then they did a sense of excellence when it came to service quality uh, in Japan in uh, 1988. And so it, it just goes to show that that the models and so on that have been developed, even though they are in, they are Scandinavian, you can say, uh, the only reason that they're Scandinavian is, is that my dad is, is Danish. And it, it's just to do with actually how the world looks and, and kind of, it is about actually understanding that all of these principles will work in any given culture, but the way that you implement it might need to change from country to country because of the more formal, the more uh, hierarchical structures that you will see in places like Asia uh, and in South America, for instance. Uh, yeah. No, cross-culture is something that I'm fascinated about and one of the topics that I teach. And, uh, have you, what, what are the biggest differences between Denmark and Sweden, you would say? Uh, you, you told me you had a Swedish mother and a Danish father. So. Oh dear, now I have to make sure I, I don't get into too much trouble. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's... It, it, there, there are two sides to it because there, there is a difference between how companies have done business in, in the two countries over the years. Traditionally, uh, Sweden, of course, with its, its very, very strong uh, unions has had a more hierarchical approach uh, in terms of how they've built their companies. It also allowed them, of course, to build some much, much bigger companies than whatever came out of Denmark. But it's something today that, of course, you are seeing that it's, that's no longer going to be the case. I don't think you're going to see huge companies on that scale being built again. Uh, I think we're going to see kind of many leaner uh, companies that can become world leaders, but because of the knowledge 
and the skills and, and also the human qualities of their employees. But you don't need those huge organizations uh, to, to build an IKEA or Electrolux or, or Novo Nordisk in Denmark. Uh, I, I think that you are going to instead see that this much more excuse me, participative approach to management is of course something that is, is pretty common across Scandinavia um, because there was a huge shift that happened in the kind of 60s, 70s, uh, where people started to become much more informal. And they wanted to be involved in that process. They demanded to be heard and managers in Scandinavia were very quick to cotton on to the fact that, hang on a second, if we actually want to achieve something, we can't be fighting with our staff. We have to get them on side in order to do so. And that's really where, of course, the idea of employership started. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, you, I think I read on the website something that you are now looking at uh, uh, digitalizing the concepts and preparing for 21st century management. So, so what are you doing now and what are you looking for at the future to, in, your, in your company? Well, as I mentioned before, we, we are, are taking all of, our, all of the tests, all of those tools and, and digitizing them. So you, you can get kind of the, the booklets, if you want to read them, you can get them as, as PDFs. You, you can download them on your Kindle. Uh, you can do the tests online in, in your own free time whenever you want to, 24-7. Uh, we are taking all of the time management principles, building on some emotional intelligence, and, uh, and uh, the net promoter score, as I said, developing that into the digital pro uh, product of practical manager. But going back to actually the very, very first thing we talked about was uh, how productivity has changed, of course. Um, one of the key things that I would like to come back to is, of course, this idea that just because we make tools available doesn't mean that people will know how to actually use them. So you might get your results from a test, but are you going to be able to do anything about it? Not necessarily. And in the same way that we have to actually learn how to use uh, computer technology, whether that's software or hardware, in order to become more productive, we also still need training of good habits in order to actually make sure that, that we uh, anchor them within ourselves and within our organizations if any change program is ever going to succeed. So therefore, of course, one of the things that we're also still doing is we're running seminars. We are doing in-company seminars. We are doing open seminars uh, on something that we call practical leadership. And practical leadership is really actually taking all of the best parts of all of the, uh, all of the things that have been developed since 1975 and until now, and delivering it in a six-day seminar that can either take place in person over the course of six days, or it can take place uh, one or two days at a time over a number of weeks, uh, whatever kind of fits into to a company's schedule. Um, and so, of course, we're also uh, delivering those over the internet now using Zoom or using Teams uh, because we need to move with the times. And, and the fact is that there's still a lot of people stuck at home, not being able to actually go to the office and work. And this idea of actually being able to, uh, to get loads of people together in one place is, is still something, of course, that a lot of companies are not feeling comfortable with. But we try and make sure that not only do we actually just give you a tool or sell you a book or allow you to take a test, we actually try and say, well, okay, now, what can you actually go and do about it? How can you become more productive? How can you develop greater relationships uh, with all of your stakeholders? And how can you actually improve the productivity? And all of those, it really does start with the individual. So the best thing you can do is, of course, you can try and get a uh, company to actually commit to sending one or two teams on a seminar where they will then not just actually get to uh, take the tests, uh, work with the tools, read the books, but they will also actually be given the, the kind of the, the mental input to actually help them be able to implement it and be able to benefit from this on an ongoing basis. 
Excellent. We'll put the link to the website in the show notes to this episode. So I think you can go to the website and learn more about the different programs that are offered. Um, I have a question about uh, structuring a consultancy business because I know there's a lot of coaches and consultants that are listening to this podcast. And uh, so I saw your father speak uh, in 1981 and I noticed he was a great speaker. He made the audience laugh and engaged and all this. Uh, And having a, a consultancy the challenge sometimes is if you only sell your time, you cannot leverage that. So how did I do that in the 80s? Did he do train the trainers or how, how did he leverage his time? Because, uh, yeah, you, you understand my question. Yeah, so of course, it is, it's the classic dilemma of, of a non-scalable business because, of course, uh, we thought about productivity as being, of course, the, uh, the output of, of the, the three resources, time, knowledge, and money. And, of course, the only one that is actually a finite resource is, uh, is time. And everybody out there has the same amount of time available to them. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And the, the thing is that, of course, you cannot do it on your own. You have to be able to either license your, your know-how or you have to actually be able to go out and, and hire people and then train the trainer internally in your organization to build your own consultancy. Um, In 1980s, we used a mixture of models, really. In terms of the international expansion, some of that was uh, through wholly owned uh, subsidiaries. Other uh, countries, it was set up as joint ventures. And in other countries, again, it was actually a franchise business. So uh, you uh, became a franchise partner and then you committed to uh, sending your trainers to, uh, to do the management training in Denmark um, at our training center there. Uh, you committed to buying X number of products a year because the model that we've always followed is that if you participate in a seminar, then you also get materials because it is there where we believe actually it has the strongest impact that you get both the materials and, and the seminar, and the two of them go hand in hand to make sure it has maximum impact. Um, then we also, of course, for some clients, we actually said, well, the companies are so big that yes, we will also certify people within the client organization do train the trainer programs. And that's still something that, uh, that we uh, are willing to do today. Uh, certify uh, trainers in in larger companies, of course, not not in small ones. But of course, then like with everything else, there needs to be recertification. Um, there also needs to be a kind of a, a minimum uh, spend or minimum royalty if if we look at other models. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So we're coming to an end to the show. I just want to show the view that where I'm sitting. I'm sitting on a beautiful Orland. So this is my view. So it's difficult. So I have this. I'm sitting on the, the uh, second floor and looking out over some houses and it's, it's not quite the same thing. <laughs> but I heard that you don't have COVID in Denmark anymore. There's no... It's well, COVID. I wouldn't actually know that because even though the, the main company is based in Denmark, I'm actually personally based in the Netherlands. Ah, uh-huh, okay, okay. Uh-huh. So I, I'm in The Hague. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. And today we have a training center and, and uh, a center of excellence also for, for product development in Slovenia, uh, uh, of all places. So uh, it's a, still, still a very international business. Um, and it is it's still, of course, something that uh, is it, interesting because, again, as I said, it just goes to show that the, the principles, the products and, and so on that have been developed over these 45 years they do have an impact in any uh, culture. And uh, that's also why, of course, we're also taking some of the old books that uh, Klaus wrote and we are updating them. We've actually just put the final touches to personal quality, which was rated by Tony Bendel um, when they did this uh, 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 list of the quality gurus in 1990 for the British Department of Trade and Industry. Uh, that was kind of the defining moment for quality in Europe. We have now taken and kind of rewritten that, kind of made it relevant in terms of the examples and so on we use for a younger audience who haven't grown up with 
things like switchboards and electronic data processing. Um, but we've also added kind of a whole sections about the importance of delivering quality when it comes to digital products and services. Um, so that, that's that been kind of great fun working on something like that. And um, so that's something that's also going to be available to buy from our website soon. Excellent. So uh, my last question that I normally ask, yeah, and I'm going to change it to business. So if, um, if you had a magic wand and you could teach something to business leaders around the world, uh, what, what would that be? Very good question. I don't know if you ever thought about that. I mean, of course, I guess it's possible now, now with all of these video conferencing technologies to actually be able to tell it all to tell it to them all at once. Um, I guess probably the most important thing I would say is that you really need to kind of focus on your staff. Uh, if you want your company to succeed, you need to focus on training your staff to be able to actually deliver uh, high productivity, have good relationships both internally and externally uh, with their stakeholders and to be able to deliver high quality so that the clients will keep on coming back. And of course, the only way that you can do that is by making sure that people actually learn about what is good managerial behavior. Okay, perfect. So we're coming to the end of the show and uh, I don't know if you had anything else to, to leave it with or? No, I, I, I think that that's it for today. Um, of course, I'm hoping that people will go on to our, our LinkedIn page and actually uh, start discussing some of these topics with us or uh, come to our website and, and look at what it is we offer. Uh, people are always uh, able to give me a call uh, or send an email to our, our info email address in order to actually find out more about how we can help your company um, and, and kind of, and, and we can tell you about the consultative process that we actually use. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was interesting. And it sounds like a lot of these principles are timeless uh, and probably more needed than ever in this fast changing world. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Oscar, for having me. It's, it's been a great pleasure. So I hope your listeners and your viewers are going to enjoy it as well. Wow, some interesting stuff that Casper was sharing and quite interesting to hear the history about this. You know, So SAS has given the name of the airlines and Janne Karlsson are big heroes here in Sweden. And when I was studying hospitality management, his books were used. And I didn't know actually that there was a Danish consultant that was part of setting up these service schools. So really interesting to hear about this. And yeah, as you uh, may know, <laughs> trends in uh, leadership come and go. There Every year there's a new leadership trend. But as Casper uh, was sharing, the components of general business excellence are normally you can divide them into just four areas. And first, the three uh, main categories of productivity, relationships, quality, and then uh, develop the leadership. So, yeah, a nice framework to be reminded of that, uh, yeah, it's the principles are timeless and can be applied to this day. And, yeah, it doesn't matter the trend. This, you need to work on these four areas if you want to build uh, general business excellence. So, yeah, more information about Klaus Müller and Casper is on their website. And I'll put the link to their website on the post uh, to this episode. As always, uh, subscribe to the show and also share it with a friend or two if you like this kind of uh, episodes. And, uh, yeah, you can also give me a review on iTunes. Those help. There's more videos on Strategic Tech Coaching's YouTube channel with uh, shorter videos and other clips from uh, different things that I've done over the years. So you can go to YouTube and search for Strategic Tech Coaching to find more information. And yeah, I hope to see you somewhere in the world. Thank you for listening to the Strategic Tech Coaching Podcast with your host, Oscar Endermo. We'll catch you next time.